You give Teller from Jerusalem 20 minutes, and he'll give you the education of a lifetime. King of the storytellers and the Shakespeare of the Torah world, here is Rabbi Hanok Teller. Hello out there in podcast land. Welcome to Teller from Jerusalem, and surprise, surprise, I'm your host, Hanok Teller. The loss of the Etzion block just in the virtual eve of independence of the state and the loss of some of its finest boys was an ominous sign for the new Jewish state. With the murder and mutilation of the 35, the Haganah changed its tactics, and from now on, those places where attacks were launched against the Jews would be subject to reprisal. Before we examine this new phase, I'm going to interject a remarkable story about the burial of these 35 soldiers that came to relieve the members of the Etzion bloc. The defenders of the Gush Etzion, in a most heroic and compassionate act, managed to bury the 35 in a very shallow mass grave with just a thin layer of dirt upon the corpses. This hasty burial was conducted under battle conditions and did not allow for any proper dignity or sketches of who was where. It was a mass grave, dug and executed under the most difficult circumstances. When Israel liberated the Gush Etzion region in the Six-Day War, the chief chaplain of the IDF, Rabbi Shlomo Gurin, had the remains of these 35 fighters brought to Jerusalem for burial on Har Herzl, the major military cemetery in the country. But it was nigh impossible to identify who was who. Their only aid was dental x-rays. Only 23 of the 35 were positively identified, and the remaining 12 were a painful mystery. The anguish of the parents of those unidentified knew no bounds, as they would never be able to pray and supplicate at the feet of the correct burial spot of their children. Several of the parents of the fallen soldiers turned to the chief rabbi of Jerusalem, Rabbi Tzvi Pesach Frank, to instruct them as to what to do regarding the corpses that could not be identified. Sensitive to the anguish of the parents, but unable to break this quandary of identification, Rabbi Frank instructed that a lottery should be conducted to establish the identity of the fallen. But this was no ordinary lottery, like picking a larger stick or twig. Rather, they were to employ the Garul Hagra, the lottery of the Vilna Gon. This methodology is Kabbalistic and deeply rooted in holy tradition and ascribed to none other than the towering figure and leading rabbinic luminary and undisputedly the greatest Jewish mind of the 18th century, the Vilna Gon, which translates the genius of Vilna. When the Vilna Gon's lottery is applied by those competent, saintly, and knowledgeable enough in their mystical ways to employ it, the results were considered on par with the decisions rendered by the Urim Vitumim, the high priest's breastplate that would light up with the answer to the imponderables. Once Rabbi Frank's ruling was publicized, there was no question as to who should be the one to execute the lottery. The brief parents turned to Rabbi Arya Levin, who was widely regarded to be the saint of Jerusalem to apply the lottery. Rabbi Arye conducted the lottery in a rooftop synagogue in the presence of some of the parents at midnight. Twelve candles were lit and placed near the holy ark where the Torah is kept. Everyone commenced the ceremony by reciting psalms. The lottery is performed by an old, if not ancient, Bible that is laid out with two columns. The Bible that Rabbi Arya used was printed in Amsterdam in 1501. As best as I can describe a mystical procedure way above my pay grade, or even comprehension, the Bible is opened at random, and then from that spot, 
it is turned to seven advancing chapters and then seven more verses. And the rule of this lottery was that the final verse on that page was to contain the name of the victim they were looking to identify, or at least a hint to his name. To the astonishment of all present, each and every page that was turned to identify each and every one of the victims contained explicit name of one of the twelve, actually of the eleven. Once they had eleven, they knew that the following one, the remaining one, was the twelfth. The next day they went to Rabbi Frank and related the astounding revelation that occurred, and he ruled that each soldier was to have a headstone with their name precisely as indicated by the lottery of the Vilna Gon. As we have been saying, there were two stages in the fight to bring about the state. Firstly, there was the civil war between the Jews and the Arabs in Palestine, running from the UN vote on November 29, 1947, through May 14, 1948, when Israel declared its independence after the retreat, after the evacuation of the British mandatory soldiers. During this period, the Haganah and other Jewish groups fought marginally organized local Arab fighters and irregular forces from other Arab countries that attacked the Jewish settlement, the Yishuv. It resembled more a civil war between Jews and Arabs than a battle between two standing armies. In this first phase of the civil war, the Arab militia that was local, with the aid of thousands of Arabs from abroad who were able to score many successful missions, they were able to cut off Jerusalem from the rest of the Jewish state, they were able to cut off the north from the eastern, from the coastal region. They were able to cut off the south from the coastal area. Fundamentally, they were able to put the Jews on the defensive. This is how it was perceived in Palestine, and this is how it was perceived abroad. In all, the war was not going well. Ben-Gurion, a master of timing and strategy, understood that he had to turn the war around or all would be lost before the state was even declared, or so lost they would not even get to that stage. For clarity's sake, let's once again review what occurred. In November 1947, the UN voted to partition Palestine that would bring about a Jewish state. It would not be automatic, and a number of things would need to happen. Most primarily, the British would need to leave, which would happen in May 1948, and then the Jews would need to be able to survive the murderous assaults that the Arabs were launching. A mere foretaste would lay in store if the Jews would declare their independence and statehood upon the British withdrawal. Even prior to the British evacuation, but after the UN vote on November 29, the Arabs had controlled the roads. Jerusalem was cut off and desperate for food and supplies. It seemed like the Jews might well lose the war. To make matters worse, it seemed like the Americans might withdraw their support for partition and might favor putting Palestine under an international trusteeship. In this first stage of the war, prior to the Declaration of Independence, Jewish defenders were able to defend against Arab attacks, but they were losing the battle for the roads, and likewise the battle for Jerusalem. The Arabs were increasingly emboldened and the Jews dispirited. Importantly, observers abroad did not believe that the Jews could win a war against the Arab states. If they could not beat the local Palestinians, hold on to the territory assigned to themselves in the partition plan, what chance would they have against regular Arab armies from at least five states? The United States State Department began pushing its trusteeship plan, which meant canceling the partition plan, to create a Jewish state. Truman was wavering as his advisors told him that the Jews might lose and be slaughtered. The once in two millennia chance to establish a Jewish state seemed to be slipping through the fingers of the Yishuv. Before the beginning of the next phase, 
which starts with the Declaration of Independence in 1948, there were calls to change the UN's partition vote. The United States State Department was adamantly against the partition, and the Jews in America were afraid that the president would sell them out. Although the United States had endorsed the partition resolution, with the escalation of hostilities in Palestine, it appeared that the gamble that the Jews would manage was in jeopardy. Arab pressure on Washington and on American oil companies lent weight to the argument that partition should be quietly dropped. The Secretary of Defense, Forrestal, and the Secretary of State, Marshall, became increasingly evasive on the question of partition. They had already concluded that partition was not workable. The Zionist leadership in America recognized the magnitude of the American policy shift. They exerted every effort to persuade the administration to resume its original policy. In mobilizing their supporters throughout the United States, they nearly alienated their most dependable ally, the president himself. Truman had had it, and thoroughly detested by all the pressure put upon him by the Jews and Jewish groups, and he was just upset by their strident tone. Pressure on the White House by Jewish and Zionist groups were incessant, and it all rubbed Truman the wrong way. It made him very bitter. He did not wish to hear about it from anyone. And now I turn to the famous biography written about President Harry Truman, called originally Truman, by the famous historian David McCullough. And he writes, Particularly offensive to Truman was the attitude of Rabbi Abba Hillel Silver of Cleveland, who, with Stephen Wise, was co-chairman of the American Zionist Emergency Council. A Republican and close ally of Senator Taft, Rabbi Silver had helped write a pro-Zionist plank in the 1944 Republican platform. At one point during a meeting in Truman's office, Silver had hammered on Truman's desk and shouted at him. Truman commented, Terror and Silver are the causes of some, if not all, of our troubles, Truman later said. And at one cabinet meeting, he reportedly grew so furious over the subject of the Jews that he snapped, Jesus could not please them when, they was, when he was on earth. How could anyone expect that I would have any luck? To his sister Mary Jane, he wrote, I'm so tired and bedeviled, I can't even be decent to people. In February, Weitzman traveled to the United States to muster support for partition, and Truman refused to see him. American Jewish leaders in desperation turned to Truman's longtime friend and former business partner, Eddie Jacobson, with whom he had owned a haberdashery decades earlier. In order to tell the remarkable story of Eddie Jacobson, let's go back to World War I, the Great War, which did not have to be personally which did not have to personally affect Harry S. Truman, as he was thirty-three years old at the thirty-three years old at the time, in nineteen seventeen, two years beyond the limit set by the new Selective Service Act. His eyesight was well below the standard requirements of the armed services, and he was a farmer. And farming was a patriotic duty, and thus exempt from military service. So said President Woodrow Wilson. Truman's decision to leave for, over there, was totally his own decision, and it was the turning point in his life. At the Army camp where he did his training in Oklahoma, aside from his regular duties, he was assigned to run a canteen for candy, 
soda, cigarettes, writing paper, tobacco, shoelaces, etc. To make the endeavor a financial success, most of them weren't, he took a partner for Sergeant Edward Jacobson, who was a former clerk in Kansas City clothing store. It was thanks to Jacobson, as Harry always admitted, that the business was successful and they became fast friends. The canteen was turning a profit of about $1,000 a day, and they then added a barber shop and a tailor shop to the canteen. To finance the canteen, every soldier in the regiment was assessed $2, and thanks to the success of the operation, all were paid back handsome profits on their initial fee, which made Truman and Jacobson very popular, and they concluded they were an unbeatable business combination. In 1947, with Truman in the White House, and sympathetic to the Zionist cause, as were the overwhelming number of Americans, his State Department was anything but. They feared that the curtailment of Arab oil could end the Marshall Plan in Europe, as Europe was dependent upon Arab oil for 80% of its needs. Marshall and other State Department officials felt that the creation of a Jewish state was not in the United States' interests. In other words, humanitarian thoughts should not impact upon practical decisions. And once again, I turn now to David McCullough's famous book about Truman. And he writes, Forrestal, Forrestal was the Secretary of Defense, was intensely against warnings of, of the disaster what could happen from Arab oil. Forrestal's bitter opposition to any American action that would favor the Zionist cause had also begun to play in Truman's nerves. And for his part, Forrestal found himself thinking less and less of a president who seemed so willing to cave in to cheap political expediency. Even after the UN vote, which the United States supported, and Truman got others to vote along with it, the State Department was against the partition plan, assuming that Israel had no chance to prevail against so many Arabs and feared that U.S. troops would be called in to save Israel. Before we continue further into the dynamics of the White House, let's gain perspective by considering the comments of Dr. Alice Radosh, author of Safe Haven, Safe Haven Harry S. Truman and the Founding of Israel. Dr. Radosh commented that Harry Truman abruptly found himself president after FDR's sudden death on April 12, 1945. Foreign policy was never his strong suit. After 10 years in the Senate, he was much more comfortable with domestic policy. Yet one issue that he felt that he could handle himself in the White House was the situation of the Jews after the Holocaust and the future of Palestine. Things did not go smoothly. Truman's daughter, Margaret, said that it was the most difficult dilemma of his entire administration. This is a remarkable statement about a president always aware of the fact that he was not elected, who had to end the World War II, had to put his country back on peacetime footing, deal with the Cold War and the Soviet Union, and help reconstruct Europe. Eight days after Harry Truman became president, he was visited by a Zionist delegation headed by Rabbi Stephen S. Wise, and he told them that he supported the Zionist goals but he was very concerned about the opposition from the State Department. The State Department was very quick in voicing their opposition and informed the president that he should abandon the situation of the Jews and of Palestine and leave it to their experts, for without their running matters, the situation in Palestine would require the involvement of hundreds of hundreds of thousands of American troops, would cost America a fortune, and undoubtedly would cause World War III. As Truman's plan to get 100,000 Jews out of Europe, languishing in DP camps into Palestine, was not working, what was there to do? And here again we return to David McCullough's biography of Truman. The issue was complicated. 
baffling and charged with emotion. Explosive, as Truman said, in the heated climate of the election year, exceedingly sensitive. Its consequences in human terms, for the Jewish people, the Arab Palestinians, and its effect on Middle East relations, could clearly be momentous and very far-reaching. Truman felt pulled in several directions. Like the great majority of Americans, he wanted to do what was right for the hundreds of thousands of European Jews, survivors of the Holocaust, who had suffered such unimaginable horrors. His sympathy for them was heartfelt and deep-seated. As a senator at a mass meeting in Chicago in 1943, he had said everything humanly possible must be done to provide a haven for Jewish survivors of the Nazis. Often as a senator, he had personally assured Zionist leaders he would fight for a Jewish homeland in Palestine. As president, he was further impressed by the report of an emissary sent in the summer of 1945 to investigate displaced persons in camps in Europe and talk to Jewish survivors. This was Earl J. Harrison, Dean of the University of Pennsylvania Law School and former U.S. Commissioner of Immigration. He had supplied Truman with an exceedingly moving document describing the misery that, as Truman said, quote, could not be, continu- could not be allowed to continue. Clearly, Truman was sickened by Harrison's report and reinforced his own belief that Palestine was the answer. Palestine, reported Harrison, was, quote, definitively and preeminently, close quote, the choice of the Jewish survivors in Europe. Only in Palestine would they be welcomed and find peace and quiet and be given an opportunity to live and work. Next time, we will resume the story the dilemma that Truman faced and learned the remarkable story of the unsung hero, Eddie Jacobson. Please encourage others to learn the history of their early struggle to build the state of Israel by supplying them the link to Teller from Jerusalem. Thanks for listening to Teller from Jerusalem, where this series takes an intelligent and thought-provoking look at the past in order to acquire a perspective on the present. Spread knowledge by giving us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. Join us next time for a brand new episode and be sure to visit telefromjerusalem.com where you can find more details about the show and other useful information. Check out the site store and just by inserting the TFJ code, you receive an additional 10% discount off the already very reduced prices of all Hanoch Teller products, books, lectures, and documentaries. And remember, don't forget, you can get Teller from Jerusalem on any podcast platform or go to telefromjerusalem.com. 